Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Good morning. Good morning, Holly. How are you? (laughs) I am well. I'm actually deeply satisfied with my morning coffee. I made a salted caramel simple syrup to put into my coffee, and it is delicious. (laughs) How do you do that? Have you ever made caramel sauce or caramelized sugar? Yeah. So you make your caramel sauce and then make it a little bit waterier more watery after it's become caramelized and then add vanilla and half a teaspoon of sea salt. I so love... is, it, is caramel uh, made just out of uh, sugar? Yeah, sugar and water. Caramelizing sugar. My yeah. mother used to do that. Yeah. I've done it some. Yeah, and you don't let it get like as thick as taffy. You just let it get kind of syrupy. But um, mm-hmm. for me the most satisfying taste is salty and sweet. It is um, just deeply satisfying. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I'm a happy camper. Well, I think that um, probably the first thing we need to address in this podcast is the um, death of John Shelby Spong, Bishop John Shelby Spong, died yeah. Sunday morning. Yeah. Probably while we were quoting him. That's what, you know, someone sent me the sort of announcement from his home church, what would be his home church in Virginia. And it was Sunday morning, John Shelby Spong died at home. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what strange and sad but cool synchronicity, um, almost like a bequeathing of, of some work that we, not just us, I mean, we're not the only ones talking about John Shelby Spong, hopefully, but that we get to keep continuing on with. Mm-hmm. Like a breath passing from one life into the next. Yeah. Well, I um, am glad that, one, I started reading Spong decades ago. Yeah. I'm glad that I was on his email distribution list, which eventually became Progressive um, Spirit. Progressive, I think that's what it's called. Progressing Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. They so took I do over take that at, one. <laughs> yeah. After he had a after he had a stroke, they they took it over. But I have. I have saved every one of his emails. I've got them wow. all, every single one, um, many of which became books that mm-hmm. he wrote. He wrote a lot of books. Oh my gosh! And yeah, I'm I'm grateful that Shelby Spong has been to St. Paul's mm-hmm. on probably three different occasions. I'm grateful that I've met him, that I conversed with him, that. I knew him through the Jesus Seminar personally, and um, I'm mostly grateful for how he gave the Bible back to people who had been so turned off of it 
and and buy it and by the way that it's been misinterpreted by uh fundamentalist christians and um he he took on the fundamentalist establishment just mm -hmm. head on mm -hmm. and he did it wearing his bishop's uniform and um he, so it's just such a smart man yeah um, really smart my my confession is that this is only the second book of his that I've read. Um, and it, it, when I, some, the same person who sent me the announcement from the church sent me his bookshelf of a picture of his bookshelf of Spong's books. And I thought, oh my God, I've really got some reading to do. <laughs> well, I think you probably uh, either have picked up from me or you already know most of what he was saying. You're not, you are not in his mm. prime audience, your tar his target audience, because you already know so much stuff. But he's really done uh, the church and progressives in the church a great service yeah. over the years. And Thankfully, we have his written works to See, something you just said made me think about the kind of generational nature of knowledge. Um, you know, maybe you consider yourself a direct student of Spong because of um, your involvement in the church, that sort of need to talk about these things from that position. And then I am a direct student of yours, right? And so without reading Spong, I get this wisdom and then I pass something else down to the next generation that then, you know, this, I just love that idea of like knowledge being fluid and knowledge being connected. Um, it reminds me of in and of itself, how one person leaves the audience and then comes back the next night. And there's that continuity, the continuity mm -hmm. of wisdom mm -hmm. and that we have to continue to grow it and evolve it and, and see it with new eyes, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks so you know i'm i'm reading um um Ilya Delio's late i think it's her latest book the hours which is written mm -hmm, the um yeah. in the format of a monastery 24-hour period and mm -hmm. um i also just happened to read the most recent issue of the magazine that you referred to sunday that you don't take but i sometimes <laughs> google <laughs> That you sometimes Google, uh, <laughs> call the Christian century. Yeah. And um, the, what Spong did was that Spong saw that if the church continued going in the direction that it was going, the Christian church, and I think that he was primarily thinking about the Protestant Christian church because whether he wrote this, I know he, he said it to some of us personally, I think he had pretty much given up hope for the Roman Catholic Church being mm -hmm. able really to pull off a reformation that it needed to. And one of Spong's early books was that Christianity must change or die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that one of the things that Iliadelio is saying, and one of the things that I'm reading in this current issue of the Christian Century, a woman has written an article in a series that the century began she back in the 60s they would periodically have the series of great thinkers in the church write an essay called how my mind has changed mm. 
Hmm. And what Spong was about was getting people to change their minds. What Ilya is about, what this article is about, what Jesus is about, was getting people to change the way they think about things. Mm -hmm. And if we don't think about things differently, we're in big doo-doo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I thought while reading this article this morning, this is precisely what Holly was saying right after the murder of George Floyd. We're living in a time of apocalypse, meaning this great revealing, mm -hmm. this revealing of how the structures of injustice, both done on people who are at the bottom of the, the pile and the injustice that is being done to the planet mm -hmm. are now being revealed to us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it may be too late to do anything about the planet. Um, but. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, we still are probably several hundreds of thousands or thousands of years off from having complete annihilation and destruction. However, we've just we've just hurried that process up so much. I mean, you know, this sixth wave of extinction is called the Anthropocene, and it's kind of being considered right now by whoever decides these names of um Ge geologic eras, but and, and usually these geologic eras are named for something that's happened naturally, right? Um, the Ice Age, the Jurassic Age, etc. That has been a radical shift in the Earth's environment that has changed life on the Earth. Um, we are that element, and that is a really sort of sobering thought to behold to me, because. Not only are we that element for the earth, but we seem bent on destroying each other too. And this, this competition, this, um, this rise of individualism, this lack of sort of communal or empathetic mind is, is going to take us down <laughs> if we can't. Yeah. And I mean, it's, as you say, it's like, well, is there hope? And, and for sure, I wrestle with that a lot. You know, I think that you and I are committed to speaking into love, speaking into compassion. Doesn't mean we're always good at it. Doesn't mean we don't sometimes, you know, yell at our children. You probably don't yell at your children anymore, but sometimes I do. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? It, 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 it's, it, it just, it brings me back to Joanna Macy. Uh, what we do in the moment remains important, even if it might not impact the outcome. One of the things I read in Ilya's book today that just is stunning because it's such a, a graphic depiction and she has the ability to do this. And uh, if you hear her in person and you see her presentation slides, she can really do it. But she said, if everybody on the planet today left the same carbon footprint that the United that people who live in the United States leave, we would need 16 additional planets. Mm. And she and the woman in the, in the who's writing Christian Century also talk about how and why it is that people on the bottom, in spite of the injustices that they experience, actually stand a better chance in many ways of surviving 
the apocalyptic things that will happen in, in climate change because they've already learned to do without very much. They've already learned to live in community and be cooperative and to help each other out. They they are doing the very things that we in the United States are not prone to do, willing to do, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, you know another thing that I thought the the what's happening in this country right, right now, and I'm thinking specifically about January six and its aftermath. Okay. Mm-hmm is the result of atonement theology in the Christian, in the mm-hmm. fundamentalist Christian church. It is mm-hmm. a violent theology. It believes in, uh, in uh, retribution, mm-hmm. the violent retribution. And that's why many of these people can say that they believe in Jesus and that they're part of the church and they can carry the Christian flag into the Capitol along with the Confederate flag. Because their theology is violent. They have a violent God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it, there's there's that. There is the, and also this focus on individual salvation, um, individual rights and freedom rather than sort of collective well-being. Right. Um, you know, there's a book that I've referenced a couple of times called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minikim. He's a somatic psychologist. Um, and he, he writes specifically for, he's a black man. I think he lives in Chicago. Uh, he, so he's writing specifically for black folks, white folks, and police. So police can encompass any race, really. The system of policing is, I would say, based in white supremacy. Mm. I don't, I am not saying that all policemen are white supremacists, but I am saying the system, because of the way that policing began, which was as um, catching runaway slaves, uh, that is based in upholding white supremacy. And um, so he, he writes about how in the origins of modern America, so what we think is our sort of origin story as Americans is is post Christopher Columbus, even though there was life here, even though there was a whole livelihood thriving here. Uh, But what the Europeans who came to the Americas brought with them was a steady experience of trauma, a steady experience of um, abuse and torture if they weren't practicing the right kind of religion in the right kind of way. And as we both know, those early settlers or colonists came seeking religious freedom, but they brought with them bodily trauma that never got transformed. And so what did we or they do? Imposed it on those we perceived as less than, more savage, less human. We created a caste, you know? So that's, that's really what his work is, is like, how do we deal with this sort of somatic trauma that we inherit? And our whole founding was on this kind of traumatized people coming to a new land and then traumatizing people, mm-hmm. you know? Well, we have one work to do, profound inner and intra communal work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think I couldn't agree with you more that 
you know, not only is the emphasis on uh, the Christianity that has the loudest megaphone today based on individual salvation, it's also focused on an afterlife, which meaning that what happens here is not that big a deal. If um, you're going to get everything rectified when you go to heaven, um, you can create hell here, I guess, before you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The focus on an afterlife, any separation of body and mind, body and spirit has really been to our detriment. Um, This idea that it doesn't matter what happens here because our spirit lives on is... um, not helpful it's not <laughs> for helpful. being right. yeah yeah that's really not helpful yeah. so yeah. um the way a way that we get make our contribution to moving through this is uh through the power of parable myth story dreams mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what yeah we're doing that's what we're getting into now with the gospel of John. We're like on the edge of the book of signs, which are stories about Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, if you will. And I'd love for you to sort of engage with that topic of the, um, the active imagination, the importance of stories and dreams to lead us into a wider vision, wider way of seeing well um i could wish that everybody would read jung's autobiography about Mm. myths and dreams um the power that they have i found myself thinking yesterday in conversation with a colleague about a um book that my teacher robert johnson wrote I heard him give a lot of this book in lectures before he ever put the book together. And and I tell you, I love Robert and I've benefited from him so much. But this particular book, though it's good, it doesn't have the flavor of actually hearing him talk about inner work and the Mm. importance of inner work, both, as I said a minute ago, interpersonally and intrapersonally we have to do this communally and Mm -hmm. individually as you know you and i periodically will quote um you know the solitary work we cannot do alone so Mm -hmm. it's it's both at, at the same time so robert wrote this book called inner work and it's full of examples, assignments, and stories about how to access the unconscious through dreams and active imagination. Mm -hmm. And the importance of that is that he says, and he, of course, is a direct student of Jung's, he says that the importance of doing this is that it connects us to the collective unconscious, which we all share. Mm -hmm. And the stories of Jesus and the stories about Jesus serve this same function. So Jesus Jesus had this capacity to tell stories that we're still puzzling about. 
Mm-hmm. And the stories mm-hmm. are not meant, as I said last week in Ordinary Life, they're not meant for us to derive some theology from them, from some to make doctrine out of them or to be dogmatic about them. We are to inhabit these stories and to allow the stories mm-hmm. to inhabit us. And uh, there are several in the book of John that we're going to get to. Most scholars refer to them as the book of signs. We don't know if John mm-hmm. had a source like um, Mark did. We don't know. But mm-hmm. it makes sense to think that, you know, 90 years deep into the Christian journey, something was circulating about these stories about Jesus. The first one that we'll get into, which is not the Sunday after this week, but the next Sunday, is this miraculous story of Jesus turning water into wine. Mm-hmm. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's a power. It's a parable. Yeah. It's not a magic well, trick. The, right. <laughs> Although you will be doing that magic trick right before, correct? Turning water into mm-hmm. wine? I could yeah, do, for all I, of I, us. I could do it. Okay. If I can hypnotize is, a rope, I can do that. I mean, that was incredible. And I'm so thankful that you didn't chop my body parts up and then make me <laughs> climb it. Um, you know, but just, I was taking a note as you were talking, but I think this is where personal work meets social work. Um, you know, where if we do, I think this, that Young says that if we, when we do our personal work, we are changing the world. Um, and then we engage in the world in a different way, in a, in a way that helps us to see the interrelated structure of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and it's hard to, it's interesting because I, I think that, that to us, midlife and beyond, it does feel like work. It feels like something we have to learn to do. But sometimes when I listen to kids talk, they're already connected, you know, like they have, they're, they're connected to source in some way that, that somehow gets lost over the course of growing up, you know, and then we have to reconnect to that in a new way with a new mind, with hopefully more consciousness and more knowledge and wisdom. But I just find that to be so um, hopeful. The seeds are already planted in us to seek this. And there's something really sad about it. The, the seeds are planted. How do we get disconnected from it? You know, over the course of a life, over the course of um, harm done, uh, trauma experienced, broken hearts, you know, whatever happens well, in I, a lifetime. I, I, I think you've already said when we focus on individual salvation and the other mm-hmm. world, we get disconnected from each other and we get disconnected from the earth. And that's mm-hmm. when all sorts of hell breaks loose. So I'll tell you a story mm-hmm. that Robert told in class. It's a story about this village where there's been a great drought. And the village shaman, the rain man, everybody has done everything they know to do to make the drought go away, but nothing has worked. The crops are dying, the cattle are dying, children are falling ill. And there is a, a wise man in another far off place they know about who has the ability to bring the rain, but he has to be sent for and he's very expensive. Mm-hmm. 
So he comes and he, um, I'll, I'll tell you that how the story develops in a minute. He comes and he does his stuff and it rains. And the crops are restored, the cattle come back to life, the children are healthy again, and everybody's happy. So Robert says that here's the story. We have fallen ill individually and communally, and there is a need to um, send, go to a foreign place, to a place that is not used to us, and to bring <laughs> wisdom in that we don't have. And it is expensive, mm -hmm. meaning not money, but it's expensive to our thought process, to our way of life, and so forth. In the story, when this wise man comes from afar, the first thing he says to the village is, I am not right inside, and will you build me a shelter where I can go and become right inside? So they build him a shelter. And while he is in the shelter, it starts raining. So when he emerges from the shelter, the people in the village implore him, please tell us how you did this. What did you do to make restoration happen? And the, the wise men said, I did nothing. I realized when I got here, there was so much fragmentation. It was affecting me. I had to go alone and be by myself and become integrated, become one. And when I did that, unity was restored all around. Mm -hmm. That's a story. Mm -hmm. So when we do our own individual work to heal the fragmentation that we absorb from the culture, then in turn, it affects the culture that we are. I think it's a great story. It is a great story and it's a continuous loop. Yeah. You know, because sometimes our ability to become whole is also impacted by the communities we live in, the ones that hold us, the ones that raise us, you know, and and so that that continuous, hopefully expanding loop, but sometimes communities are constricting and one has to leave the community all together. Now you to as, be able you as an artist yeah. will know far more about what I'm gonna say than I do. I know that Robert <laughs> made a big deal out of the role of mandalas yeah, oh yeah. In, yeah. in healing. And he also mm -hmm. had another word in addition to mandala. He also used the word mandola. And I'm not sure exactly what that means. I have to go back and check my notes about that. But he connected mandalas, for example, to the Tibetan sand paintings. Yeah. And, and which if you've ever seen an interpret sand painting, they spend hours and hours doing these incredible things mm -hmm. and then sweep mm -hmm. them away in the brush of a hand. Yeah, yeah. I, I've gone twice to the Manil collection when they've had the Buddhist monks in the museum itself creating a sand mandala. And it's really something to behold. I once took my three boys when they were quite little. <laughs> what sort of like I introduced some energy into that room how about you know um but it was really incredible you know they it used 
the story with that that was initial that I initially heard was that they did it one grain at a time, you know, just plucking these with tweezers and doing it one grain at a time. Now, what I notice is that they have these vials of colored sand and they pour a little bit in and they use these very fine brushes to kind of right. get it into the um, shape or place that they want it to be. Mm-hmm. And just before, and I was there on the last day as they were finishing it, just before they finished it, I think one of the younger, the novice monks, took out his phone and started taking pictures, <laughs> you know, and I know that, you know, part of it is this is the world we live in. We live in this technological age. What does he want to do? Go home and show his friends and family. Look, I did it. You know, I did the mandala, but the whole purpose is designed to become non-attached and to be in the process and not attached to the outcome. And, and this point that you just made about that monk taking the photo with his phone uh, is something that Ilya mentions in this, the book, uh, the hours uh, book that I'm reading is that technology has the mm-hmm. capacity to connect mm-hmm. us as a community as never before, but mm-hmm. we're not using it for the good of the community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so she, Ilya is in direct lineage to Teilhard. I mean, she, she, I think I remember her saying she received some like original manuscripts yes. of his. Yeah. Um, so she has a really deep relationship with Teilhard. Teilhard was a techno optimist for sure. And, you know, there are just as many uh, spiritual thinkers, if you will, who are not, who are tech, not techno optimists because it, because of this kind of, it takes us too much out of our body. Um, but what Ilya, I think is saying is that we've got to, um, we've got, you know, we already are, uh, hybrids you know we have the capacity to make artificial limbs artificial hearts even artificial pieces in our body that are not human we're already mostly not human elements we're already you know that just begs the question of what is the human element if most of what's in us is not human (laughs) then what is the human element and over and over and over again the answer is consciousness um i just read an article about um just really damning the idea that an electron is conscious. An electron itself is not conscious. It has what Aristotle would have said, um, the possibility to actualize consciousness, right? And everything is not 100% what it is. A mountain is not 100% mountain. It's made of other element. You know, there's not a mountain element. So So we're all just a big conglomeration. (laughs) So Ilya is right in line with Meister Eckhart and with the authors of John. I must say authors. Mm -hmm. Um, In in seeing um, the world as a whole, of course, whoever wrote John to deny the cosmology that we do. So that I want to keep saying that. Right. But Meister Eckhart didn't have that cosmology either. Mm-hmm. And Meister Eckhart got it that the eye yeah. with which I see God is the same eye that, with which God sees me. And that Ilya says that the function of consciousness, of human consciousness, is for the cosmos to reflect back upon itself. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're reflecting back on what's happening to us, the earth, we're not doing a good job of being honest and uh, integrated about what we're seeing. Well, I think that has a lot to do with having left the body. Yeah. You know, and um, and on that note of bringing up Meister Eckhart, I read this wonderful 
poem in this in the book, the Book of Secrets this morning that I'll maybe this will be where we stop. Um, but it says, where is God's temple? There once was a meeting of theologians, each one wiser than the others, gathered to explain what God's true nature was. One of the wise ones argued that God was in the soul and the soul in the heart, so that God was most truly in the heart. But I say this, the soul is entirely and utterly present in every single part of the body, even in the foot or the eye. If this is so, we must say that God is present in every part of our body equally. So take care of those toes of yours. Oh, that's good. Well, it gotta be in our body yeah. too, you know? So you're going to be so. teaching by yourself this Sunday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about thunder in the desert, the line before the signs <laughs> that invites us to see differently. Well, I'll tune then, in. I'll tune in and watch you. Yeah. I hope that everything goes well. Thanks. So you're going to do a magic trick? Yes, I'm going to make you disappear. <laughs> okay. All right. Love you, Holly. See you later. Love you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.